All right, if you have your Bibles this evening, please open to Exodus chapter 20. We're going to continue in our study of the Ten Commandments this evening with Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, the third commandment. We will, as we have done so far, begin in verse 1 and read all the way through verse 17. Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. And God spoke all these, things, all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. The grass withers and the flowers fade. You may be seated. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, as we come once again to your word, we pray, O oh Lord, reveal its truth to us, that we may know the depths of your love, that we may know the depths of your character as you have given us this description of your character in these Ten Commandments. Father, let us see the truth tonight. Let us be convicted of our sin that we might hate it and that we might cast it off. And let us desire most of all to look like Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen. Did you know only around 20% of what Jesus says in the Gospels are actually his words? At least that's what the Jesus Seminar a group of liberal New Testament scholars from the 1980s said. These 50 men, plus another 100 or so laymen, took it upon themselves to find the true words of the historical Jesus. Their method, voting via colored beads. Red beads were going to be cast when the statement was believed to be the true words of the historical Jesus. Pink beads were cast when the statement was not thought to be his exact words, but something similar to what he said or taught. Gray beads were cast when the phrase was, ta- was thought to be something entirely other than what Jesus had said, not his words. And black beads were used when the words were not only not what Christ had said, 
but they were not anywhere close to anything that he said or taught. Now, of course, this was not based on any evidence whatsoever, but rather on the opinions of these liberal New Testament scholars. When we think of the third commandment, the first example that comes to our minds is most likely not these men and the conclusions of the Jesus Seminar. Rather, we most likely think of someone who swears by or uses the literal name of God in an unholy or irreverent way. Yet as the Westminster divines so distinctly point out, the requirement of the third commandment is the holy and reverent use of not only God's names, but God's names, titles, attributes, ordinances, word, and works. And if we think on this for just a moment, I think we will all come to the same conclusion. While we rarely attach those six things, all six of those things, to the word name in our day and age, they are all certainly connected to the biblical and, un- his- biblical and historical understanding of name, something we might better refer to or be more comfortable referring to as reputation. When we understand reputation to be that which is being talked about here in the third commandment, it quickly becomes evident that all six of these things are connected to the third commandment. Tonight, as we examine this commandment together, I want us to do so in two points, following the same pattern that we've used up until this point. We'll first discuss the commandment itself and what it requires of us, and then secondly, we'll discuss in brief the reason for the commandment, the reason given for the commandment. And my hope is that in all of it, we might see in what manner God wills us to worship. So first of all, the commandment and its requirements for us. As we discuss this together, I think it's helpful for us to use the catechism as a guide. And to be more specific, I want us to look at those six standards given to us in the Westminster Shorter Catechism and how they relate to the keeping and or breaking of this third commandment. So we'll look at all six of those things, God's name, his attributes, uh, names, titles, attributes, ordinances, word, and works. We'll look at each of those this evening under this first point. First of all, God's names. This one is perhaps the most obvious of the six and likely the one you think of most regularly when you're confronted with the third commandment, that you are not to take the Lord, the name of the Lord your God, in vain. When we think of someone who is violating this commandment to not take the Lord's name in vain, our tendency is to think of that individual who swears and uses the, the word God or the word Lord in an extravagant and excessive way for the sake of expressing their own anger or frustration. And already in that, even as we use just that example, we see a much deeper issue at hand, the heart that is underneath all of it, the heart that is angry in the first place, that has already broken other parts of God's law, as well as the heart that has first and foremost said that God is not deserving of honor and of praise. What is really going on under the surface is more than just the outward words, although that is certainly a part of the sin. Underneath the words themselves, though, uh, is an even greater sin. A rejection of God as God. A rejection of Him as significant or important or as holy. When the individual uses the name of God in this manner, they first and foremost deny that God's name is worthy of reverence. 
think for a moment, if you lived in a dictatorial state, think something like communist Russia under Stalin or communist China under Mao or North Korea, as Stephen brought up earlier this morning, and you decided that you were going to go to the very middle of the capital of that country, and then you're going to the very biggest square, the most public place, and then you go to the middle of that square and you go out there and you begin shouting and cursing the name of Stalin or Mao or any of those dictators, how long do you think it would be before you were, at the very minimum, grabbed, arrested, and taken off to prison, if not killed? It wouldn't take very long. But how much greater, how much, uh, how far above all of these sinful, evil men is God? And if they want their name reverenced, how much more is it right that the God of the universe, the creator of heaven and earth, ought to have his name reverence. And while he's not an evil dictator, and he doesn't strike you dead the moment that you take his name in vain, the moment that you break this commandment, we are assured even here in this text that it will not go unpunished, for his name is deserving of all praise and honor. We must not take the name of the Lord our God in vain. If this person describes you, if you are one who who struggles in in using the name of God as an expletive, the application is simple. Repent and turn from these evil and idolatrous words. Make much of who Christ is, not little. Every time you catch yourself using the Lord's name in vain, stop and pause. Seek then, right then and there, the forgiveness of the Lord and then actively change your speech. When you start to say something that you shouldn't, stop and change your words. When you mess up and you do say something that you shouldn't, when you do take the Lord's name in vain, correct it immediately. Correct it out loud and in front of anyone that's there. For more than your words must change. Your heart, your mind, the way you think about God must change. This is the first requirement of the commandment. That we take his name seriously, that we treat it with holy reverence. The second thing, or the second area that the Westminster Divines identify is that of God's titles. While similar to God's name, this denotes a a, a greater disdain for the order and the place of God. Infractions against this might look similar to God's name and might include even using the word Lord in a derogatory way. But it goes even beyond that. It goes further than that. It might look so drastic as to deny the, or, or make light of Christ and his role as your savior or your king. This, we already have an example of this from the New Testament, Pilate. He nails the sign above the cross when Jesus is being crucified. And what does the sign say? This is the king of the Jews. Pilate wasn't trying to speak truth. He was trying to make light of who it was that Jesus claimed to be. And while it was a true statement, it was nevertheless a violation of this very commandment. Another version of this would be those people who will admit and even support that Jesus was a good teacher, a good preacher, a good moral man, but will otherwise deny his divinity, his messiahship, his kingship. Now, while this one is unlikely to be many of you, it is nevertheless an important reminder of who it is that we serve. He is our Savior and our King. And every word that we speak, every word that comes from our mouth ought to reflect that. 
The third area that is identified here by the Westminster Divines, the attributes of God. This goes beyond even the first two, and it strikes at the very core of those who would make God in, his, in their own image. I've heard the words before from people who would claim Christ in his entirety, who uh, go to church every single week, but who either don't know or don't believe all that the Bible teaches about him. When that individual hears a portion of teaching about God that they don't like, something like the doctrine of election, that's an easy example. They'll say the words or something like the words, well, my God wouldn't do that. And what do they mean by that? Though they may not understand it in their fullness, they might not even understand really what it is that they're saying when they're saying that. They're saying that their God, the God that they worship, isn't sovereign. He isn't holy. He isn't righteous. He isn't just. He doesn't visit the iniquity of the fathers on their children. He doesn't hate sin. He doesn't hate all who do wicked. That can't be their God. Some have even gone so far as to say that the God of the Old Testament is a different God entirely from the God of the New Testament. But this is blasphemy. The God of the universe is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He is holy. He is just. He will not let sin go unpunished. To deny any of these things or any of their practical outworkings in the world is to deny the truth of who God is and to tarnish his reputation, taking his name in vain. He has revealed himself in Scripture. He has said who he is. He has told us the true attributes that describe him. And when we reject any of those, we take his name in vain. Well, we can avoid this violation of the commandment by most simply studying what it is that God has said about himself in Scripture. And when we're confronted with a new idea, we should be careful not to immediately dismiss it unless, and this is an important unless, it immediately contradicts something that you know for a fact is already true of God, that God has said about himself in the Scriptures. But if it, it doesn't immediately contradict that, then you should weigh it against the Scriptures. You should not be quick to say, no, that's not true of God. That's not my God. We must be careful what we say about God, about who He is, and about how He has revealed Himself in Scripture. When and if you hear a doctrine of God that you don't like or you don't think that you agree with, be careful before dismissing it, lest you fall and violate this commandment. We must be diligent and also cautious. Fourth area, the ordinances of God. This also builds on the previous ones mentioned by the Westminster Divines, and here they warn against taking lightly the ordinances of God. In some ways, this goes hand in hand with his word, which we're going to come to in just a moment, but it's more nuanced than simply the words of God, and it strikes the very core of belief, the very core of faith. We must not fail to acknowledge and to seek the will of God as it is revealed in his word. We cannot take lightly his commands or think that they are of little consequence. Rather, we must believe them to be true. Not only believe them in word or even in, in mere acknowledgement, but we must act as though they are true. Our lives must be a reflection of who God is and what he has commanded us to do. Practically speaking, this means that we must not take lightly the Ten Commandments or any of the other commandments of God. This is obvious 
given our current study, but it's important that we understand that it's not merely enough to say, yes, we believe in these Ten Commandments. But we must not be in any way dismissive of them, thinking that they aren't that important, or that it's okay to break them on occasion so, as long, so long as that's not our, our pattern of life. So long as we generally follow them, it's, it's okay every now and then to set that one aside. Now, where this becomes complicated is when we come to a conversation of justification and sanctification, because we believe that we don't have to keep the commandments in order to merit our salvation. We don't need to keep the commandments in order to earn favor with God. That has been done for us through the finished work of Christ on the cross. And so our temptation is to believe that we are entirely loosed from the oversight of these commandments, but this couldn't be further from the truth. The Apostle Paul, in talking about the the new life of the Christian in Romans chapter 7 and chapter 8, is absolutely clear that the law no longer has condemning power over us. It no longer condemns the believer. It no longer condemns their sin. But, and this is simultaneous to our deliverance from the condemnation of the law, we are freed from our slavery to sin and simultaneously made slaves to righteousness. It's not freedom to do as we will, freedom to go and and do whatever we want, say whatever we want, live however we want, but a binding covenant that brings us from the estate of sin into an estate of righteous reconciliation wherein we are called to keep the law as perfectly as we possibly can. We must keep the ordinances of God. We must desire to keep the ordinances of God. And to ignore its implication on our lives, or to make light of it, or to dismiss it, or to reject it, is to take in vain the reputation of God. Fifthly, the words of God, or the Word of God. As I mentioned already, this goes hand in hand with the ordinances of God, but it goes beyond belief in the commandments to, I believe, a general attestation to the truth of God's Word as a whole. As I mentioned in the beginning, the Jesus seminar serves as a ripe example for what violating this commandment looks like. Not only did these men not believe the ordinances of God, they didn't believe his words to be his. They didn't believe his words to be authoritative, to be inerrant or infallible. And because of this, they were able to create a Jesus that was to their liking, one who said little about sin and a lot about love, one who wasn't God but who was a really good man. One who could be an example of moral living, but didn't have to be followed to the cross. This is the perfect example of what this means to take in vain uh, the words of Jesus. At times, this is very easy, for, easy for us to see. There are very explicit examples of this that it's very obvious that it's a violation of the commandment. But more often... Violating this commandment is a far more subtle thing. We generally don't outright deny that something is in the Word of God or is the Word of God. At least most of you probably don't. But the question is, is do you think about His words and act on His words in a way that uh, doesn't give them the gravitas that they deserve? Do you, do you live your life as though the words of God, the words of Scripture, might as well not exist? Do these words impact you? Do they change you? Do they affect your very being? Because they should. 
do you take them with all the seriousness that they deserve? Far too often we don't. We don't take seriously the warnings of the New Testament. We take lightly the issues of sin. We allow ourselves to read the Word of God and to be content with the mere reading of it, not the deeper study and meditation that we are called to. And so we must be careful. Careful to take seriously these words, for they contain all the words of life. No one nor anything else contains such words. And so consider them with deep reverence. Six and finally, the works of God. This is last in the list, but it is not least in the importance. This deals with both the works of God in Scripture and in history, as well as those works which He does in our own lives. I heard the illustration a while back. I think it actually may have even been Stephen uh, on Sunday morning one time. He told the story of this man who uh, is late to an important meeting, and when he arrives, he can't find a place to park. And so every single, uh, every single spot in the entire lot is filled. He circles the lot time, time, and time again. Um, and finally, he, he is just so worried about being late, he stops and he prays and he asks God to please provide a place for him to park And no sooner had he said amen than the car, three spaces down, backs out and leaves. And he looks up and he says, never mind God, I found one. This illustration, while satirical in nature, points to the exact truth of what this commandment is getting at. What the Westminster divines have in mind when they talk about the works of God. Far too often we attribute the works of the sovereign God of the universe to the natural order. We need money to make ends meet, and we find a check that we had forgotten about and hadn't yet cashed. And instead of thanking God for providing for our need, we think, oh, I shouldn't forget that next time. Or we need a house, and we can't figure out why none of them are working out, only for all of them to be damaged and destroyed in a hurricane that hits that would have been a month after we had closed on the house. We need this, or we need that, and the the answers mysteriously arrive just in time. Again and again, God works in the lives of his people, but how often do we attribute that provision, do we attribute that work to to nature or to life and not to the God who gives all of these things? And why is it, on the flip side of that, not only when we get the good things, but when the bad things come, when things don't seem to be going our way, that our first response is to blame God rather than to believe his promise that all things work together for the good of those who love him. Rather than believe his promise, um, we want to blame him for everything that is happening to us and make it his fault. The fact is, is that God is working according to his promise. He is working all things together for the good of those who love him. This is the nature and the work of God. Rarely does he cause manna to fall down from heaven. Most often, he uses ordinary, simple means to accomplish his will, and we must be careful not to take any of it for granted. This is what's required of us in the third commandment. While simple on the surface, when you begin to peel back the layers of the onion, you quickly find out just how often you break it, a sin that we must not take lightly. And we'll see why here in our second point this evening, the reason for the commandment. The reason for the commandment's not lengthy, and it gets rather straight to the point. The Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. 
This is a severe and terrifying penalty, is it not? Well, we look at the third commandment and we think that breaking it isn't such a big deal. After all, who does it really hurt? It's not hurting anybody around us. It's it's not really doing anything. God looks at it and is jealous for his honor. And he will not allow it to go unpunished. In the same way that a civil magistrate should look at a murderer and condemn him for his crime, so the judge of heaven and earth will look at you and condemn you for yours. This is the promise attached to this commandment. The Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. The terrifying part is that there is not a man, woman, or child in this room who has kept this commandment. In this, we're reminded once more of the good news of the gospel. The news of a mediator, the news of a go-between, a perfect sacrifice to who took our sin upon himself and gave us his righteousness, who perfectly obeyed the law every moment of his life and then took that obedience and gave it to us on the cross. It's only in Christ that we can stand upright before the Father and know that we will not be condemned. He will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain, but he held Christ in our place. He condemned Christ in your place. For your breaking not only of this commandment, but of all the commandments. This is the beauty of the gospel. We don't have to worry about this threat, about this reason, just as it is, because it has been dealt out to Christ on our behalf. This penalty ought to motivate us. Even though we're not trying to escape it, though we don't have to escape it, because Christ has taken it for us, it ought to motivate us. It ought to drive us to not only avoid breaking the commandment, but to positively keep it. H.B. Charles notes that there are three ways that we can actively keep this commandment opposite those ways in which we violate it. First, we can honor God's name by confessing Christ as our Savior and our Lord. We can honor God's name by confessing Christ as our Savior and our Lord. In this, we honor his name, his title, his word, and his works. We honor his name as holy and good, his title as Savior, Messiah, Lord, King. We honor his word that tells us of his wonderful gospel. And by believing in it, we honor his works. By resting in his finished work, we honor it. By being content and full of joy at what God has done, we honor his name. Secondly, We can honor God's name by living our lives in a manner that is consistent with the gospel. In this way, we honor God's ordinances, word and works. We honor his ordinances by obeying them, demonstrating by our actions that we truly believe the words that we speak, that we truly believe the scriptures that we read and the sermons that we hear preached, that this gospel is not some fad, it's not some fake thing, but is real and is true and has impacted our lives. It honors his word by showing that we believe it, and it honors his works by acknowledging them as a part of our lives. Thirdly, we can honor God's name by speaking well of it whenever and wherever we are. We can honor God's name by speaking well of it whenever and wherever we are. In this, we honor all of the above, all of his names, all of his titles, all of his attributes, all of his words, all of his works. We confess and we defend who God is and what he has done, not only for us, but for all who believe. 
This is the glory of God in keeping the commandment. This is what we're called to. So brothers and sisters, let us go forth and praise the most holy name of Jesus. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, we confess, O Lord, that we are not sinless in this commandment. That we have not kept it as we ought, but we have time and again taken your name in vain. We have not honored your name, your titles, your attributes, your ordinances, your word, or your works as we ought, but have rebelled against it far, far too often, and in doing so have rebelled first and foremost against you and sought after idols of our own making. Oh Lord, forgive us, we pray, and help us to build up a love of this commandment, to build up a love of Christ, to seek him, and to honor this, your law, as he honored it to obey it as he obeyed it, not that we might earn your favor, but that we might bring you glory now and forevermore. For we pray it in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.